0: So this morning, Tim Bascom is here to talk about um, using the visual arts in literature. And perhaps one of the first rules in creative writing is to show and don't tell. And this usually includes the advice to use strong images. So already in the first rules of literature, we're conjuring up this idea that writers should be visual to make their writing strong. I'm taking Amber Dermont's fiction writing class at the workshop, and yesterday she was talking about Shalovsky's theory, and he was one of the earliest Russian literary critics, and he said that all art is based on defamiliarization. So an artist must make the strange familiar, and the familiar must be made strange to make it feel real, which is sort of counterintuitive, but I think that it's going to link to what Tim is talking about this morning. So the writer Tim Bascom is here, and he's going to talk about ways in which writers can draw inspiration from what essayists and all writers might learn from the visual artists. We'll consider how looking at visual art can open a writer to new possibilities and inspire them to reconsider the world and their images in new and fresh and even strange ways. Timothy Bascom, who spent much of his childhood in East Africa, has published pieces in magazines such as the Missouri Review, Spoon River Poetry Review, Slant, Creative Nonfiction, and many more. His memoir, Chameleon Days, an American Boyhood in Ethiopia, won the Bankless Literary Prize in Nonfiction. And uh, his work has also been selected for Best American Travel Writing and the Best Creative Nonfiction. Baskin received his MFA from the University of Iowa Nonfiction Writing Program. He is currently the director of the Creative Writing Program at Waldorf College in Northern Iowa. Please join me in welcoming him now.
1: Good, I've got some of my technology working. Hi, Bo. (laughs) Um, Good to see you. Uh, Jen, thank you for organizing all of this. It's been fun to be part of the 11th hour lecture series and to do this a couple times in the past as well. It's fun to see some folks out there that I recognize from uh, classes that I've taught in the past. And uh, Jen mentioned that um, I'll be, that my work's been primarily in nonfiction. So I'm going to talk about that primarily from that vantage point, but uh, I hope that it applies across all the disciplines. So we've got, uh, I'm going to be walking over here so that I can shift slides. Mm -hmm. And Images are going to be important. I hope that we can talk about them a little bit, and feel free to jump in when we're doing that. Magritte has this image, the treachery of images. It's one of his iconic ones, maybe the one that's best known. And underneath it we have in French, si n'est pas une pipe," which is to say, this is not a pipe and he's always messing with us. Um, is it a pipe or isn't it? Come on, doesn't it look like a pipe? But his point was that that's not a pipe, that's, that's a painting of a pipe. And that's a very important fundamental thing to understand, pipe or no pipe. And what about those words that he's put under this painting, do they belong? Should they be in a piece of art? That's another interesting question to bring to this image. Well, I say if Magritte can put uh, words into his art, why can't we put art into our words, right? And switch it up. This is an image that some of you may know by Peter Bruegel, um, titled Icarus. And W.H. Auden wrote a very famous poem that's in a lot of anthologies, "Musée de Beaux-Arts by W.H. Auden. About suffering, they were never wrong, the old masters. How well they understood its human position. How it takes place while someone else is leading or opening a window or just walking dully along. In Brubel's Icarus, for instance, how everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster. The plowman may have heard the splash, the forsaken cry. But for him, it was not an important failure. The sun shone as it had to on the white legs disappearing into the green water and the expensive delicate ship that must have seen something amazing, a boy falling out of the sky, had somewhere to get to and sailed calmly on. So one of the ways that art uh, engages with our writing is that we can take it as subject matter. And Auden says, I'm going to look at this painting and I'm going to respond to it as content and writes what we call an ekphrastic poem. He is delightful in seeing the image and seeing something that Grubel either consciously or subconsciously wanted to convey. I mean, where is Icarus? Can you see him? Just those tiny legs, you've been given the clue off to the right near the ship. And the ship is pointed away, not towards. So it leaves him uh, in its wake. And the plowman is busy with his work, and the shepherd is looking off to the wrong direction. Everybody looking away from what is really a tragic and noble and large uh, event in most literature or in most art. If you were to see other paintings of Icarus, and there are a lot of them, Icarus will always be gigantic, taking up almost the whole of the frame that has been given to him. But here, Bruegel is trying to capture something else. By the way, have somebody seen other Bruegel images, you know, there's one of Jesus going to the cross. He's uh, walking in the distance down in the valley. People are having a picnic. There's dogs running off to the side. There's a big crowd. Way off in the distance, you can just see three tiny crosses. And it's like, where's Waldo? You know, you're looking at this image and finally, oh, there he is. There's Jesus right there in the middle with just this tiny little cross hidden away. So Google didn't do this just once, and if you read the whole of the poem, you'll see he's referring to two, three different images by Google. Beautiful piece of work, what we call the Ectrastic poem. So <clears throat> I'm going to argue, though, that content is not the only way that we can engage um, with art as writers. We can also learn about craft. Here we have this image um, that is by Alberto Castro Manero. An artist I don't know well, but I just chanced upon when I was down in Austin and went to uh, a museum there. And I really loved his work and spent time just, you know, meditating on this piece. What can we learn from it um, when we look at it? I think to start with, what do we notice about it? Anybody notice something as you're looking at it? Don't feel comfortable. Throw a hand up. Yeah. Vertical lines and horizontal.
2: The verticals are straight, the
1: horizontals are broken. Great, she's saying vertical and horizontal lines, and that those are a kind of pattern that's reoccurring in a piece. The verticals, as you look at them, almost have a human feel to them. Um, These dark, shadowy figures, perhaps, that are repeating, and across them is this horizontal line that is occurring. He actually used uh, street paint, you know, that really thick, viscous stuff, and painted it across these wall boards. These are actual pieces of walls that he's kept, like a drywall, some of them with um, the, the paper still on it, and then he's painted over the top of it. You may notice as well that there are patterns of repetition in color because we have panels that are ones that have what look like blocks on them. They're kind of dull uh, white, and, and, and we've got that kind of aqua green uh, repeated in the brown in the vertical lines. So we have repetition, and we have what looks at first like a mess, but is actually very organized. Um, And so it has cohesion, even though it's very fragmented. So the lyric essayist, who's working in nonfiction, is also presenting fragments and doing it in a unified fashion. And I think it's fun to see how art and literature are interacting with each other. I, I don't know that that's a very conscious thing. Or maybe it has to do with what era we're in, but this is happening a lot in the lyric essay. It's getting a lot of attention now. And Eula Miss is a master of that form. And in her essay, Time and Distance Overcome, she starts with Alexander Graham Bell's invention of the telephone she takes the stance of the inventors and, and the industrialists themselves, which is a very positive, rah-rah, look what we've made sort of thing at the turn of the century, back around 1900. Time and distance overcome, read an early advertisement for the telephone. Rutherford B. Hayes pronounced the installation of a telephone in the White House, one of the greatest events since creation. The telephone, Thomas Edison declared annihilated time and space and brought the human family in closer touch and she's carefully put that last of the things that she hands you that it has brought the human family in closer touch. That's not what I wanted. So now I want to come back the down. Then, with only a thin line to designate a shift, this leaps away from such proclamations, creating a spine-chilling irony against Edison's notion of that connected humanity. In 1898, in late Cormorant, Mississippi, a black man was hanged from a telephone pole. And in Weir City, Kansas, and in Brookhaven, Mississippi, and in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the hangman was riddled with bullets. And I wish that you could read the whole of this so that you can get the full impression of what she does, switching back and forth between just bashful stuff on the telephone pole and telephones and this reality of lynching. We have jumped to a very different panel with sharply contrasting color or tone, yet the subject is still there, like the vaguely human figure in Lennaro's painting, that vertical. In this case, it's the telephone pole that's also lynching, and the wires are still dangling across those poles like white viscous paint, connecting them, connecting us all in a new, terribly uncomfortable way. By leaping and creating a surprising juxtaposition, this gets us to think in a significant new way. But she'll keep coming back to those poles and making it a kind of a motif throughout the piece that will hold it together, even though it's
3: fragmented and delivered in segments. Art
1: historically operates under the sign of the real. Some might argue on that, but I, I would insist that, that historically, when you made art, it was seen as a record of something. So even when we look at the cave paintings, they may have been a way of like celebrating a special hunt where a lot of animals were gotten. Certainly when they made these uh museum these uh, grave images that they put on the caskets. They were trying to capture an image of the person who had died. That's uh, the piece on the left here um, in in Roman Egyptian um, history. And you got your still life that looks like the real thing before we had a photograph. Look at this, this is a real lobster. This is a real parrot. Um, So art was, kind of insistently forced back upon fact, you know? We're, we're, we're giving you representations of things that really happen. I know there were people who messed with that and uh, were doing very creative work, but a lot of the popular uh, populace, if they went to it, just were seeing it as that kind of record. That's why it's connected to creative nonfiction. It's a form of nonfiction, in a way, where it's fighting against what people might think is nonfiction, visual art. But art is not a factual recording. To borrow from the 17th century English definition, art is personally informed and it's a work of cunning. The subject of the painting is manipulated to appear a certain way, true to the artist's sensibility. So here we have Norman Rockwell giving us Richard Nixon and it's a very naturalistic piece um, in a warm palette of colors that is kind of muted And he is after a certain facial expression that suggests a kind of kind warmth in this person. Here's another image by Andy Warhol um, called Vote McGovern. And he's actually going to use words and put them right in there. And see how sharp the contrast um, as he applies that mustard yellow on the lips and turns uh, the face into this kind of. Uh, ghastly green-blue thing staring out at us and uses such harsh contrasting colors with that. Uh, what is it? Pinkish, burgundyish color down there against the yellow. What we're getting here is two very different perceptions of the same person. I'd ask you which one's true. In this room, probably most of us lean towards the right side, but um, I don't think that's the point, and I don't think that either of them is true in the sense that we can absolutely say, that's Richard Nixon. And that's the whole point. Art isn't about that, in a way. It is about perception. That's what we celebrate, is the way a person sees and how that person delivers it to us and therefore gets us to see through that person's eyes. So I think we can celebrate both of these um, as very interesting visions of the same individual. Like art, the nonfiction essay is not merely factual, though that's where it's gonna get pigeonholed. Patricia Hample insists that the true engine of a personal narrative is consciousness, not experience. In other words, it's not the thing that happened, it's the way you look at it in your consciousness. We're in love with the artist's way of seeing, not just her knowledge of a subject. We want to be guided by a peculiar, unique consciousness, or to put it in a literary idiom, a specific voice. So I give you this voice. Strange crossroad towns rolled by with shawled Indians watching us from under hatrons and rebozos. Life was dense, dark, ancient. They watched Dean serious and insane at his raving wheel with eyes of hawks, all had their hands outstretched. They had come down from the back mountains and higher places to hold forth their hands for something they thought civilization could offer, and they never dreamed the sadness and the poor and broken delusion of it. They didn't know that a bomb had come that could crack all our bridges and roads and reduce them to jumbles and we would be as poor as they would someday, and stretching out our hands in the same, same way. All right, who is it? Who's the voice? Anybody going to say, I know, I know. It's Jack Kerouac. Kerouac. Jack Kerouac. And you can hear his kind of characteristic flow, right? In the way that he's delivering this image. One of the things is how he starts these short um, declarative sentences that uh, then extend, and by the end he's into and, and, and. And we have this sense that, you know, it's breathless, what he's, whatever he's saying has to follow on the next sentence, on the next one, right on the heels of it, the way that he always writes. And it's a voice that we're engaged with. He's looking at the Mexican people, particularly the Mexican male, and we jump to somebody very different, who's talking on the same subject, the Mexican male. The Mexican, whether young or old, Creole or Mestizo, general or laborer or lawyer, seems to me to be a person who shuts himself away to protect himself. His face is a mask and so is his smile. In his harsh solitude, which is both far and courteous, everything serves him as a defense. Silence and words, politeness and disdain, irony and resignation. He is jealous of his own privacy that of others, and he is afraid even to glance at his neighbor because a mere glance can trigger the rage of these electrically charged spirits.
3: In this case, anybody
1: know who it is? I think this is a tougher one. We're we're looking at a piece by Octavio Paz, and he's from Mexico, and he's writing from that standpoint. Um, I think that's interesting because we might say, well, he's got the inside track on this, right? He's lived in the culture. Whereas we got the tourist Jack Parillac blasting through on a bus, making his observations. Octavio Paz's um, language is very interesting to look at because he writes more balanced sentences, or what we might call a periodic sentence, where we have to wait for the conclusion of it because he inserts something, rams it in like a wedge into the middle of it, the Mexican, and he stops, whether young or old, real or mestizo, general labor or or lawyer, seems to me to be a person who shuts himself away. You see what I'm talking about? He inserts that in there and balances out in an interesting way and makes us wait. And uh, he's doing a different kind of language that feels a little bit more harsh. It feels more measured, stately. So his tone is affecting how we're experiencing it, and it seems to uh, mimic or imitate the very thing he's talking about, um, a kind of uh, reserve that he's observing. And yet, I would argue that whether he, I wish he could be here and talk to us about it, but. Even he is probably bringing himself to what he's looking at. So, you know, how much of it is that that's exactly who the Mexican male is or how much of it is that that's what Octavio Paz is himself and what he imposes onto his subject or what he sees, that's kind of interesting to think about. But both of them are presenting very interesting images of the Mexican male and making us want to read more, I think because of that unique voice, that perception they're bringing to what they're looking at. And that is what creative nonfiction can do, and art's doing it too, thinking perception. So as one of the more factual, that's a good question, is that even the point? Here's an interesting thing, what we imagine matters too in creative nonfiction. Um, in a piece of art titled Attempting the Impossible, the name of the Greek depicts an artist painting this life-size nude woman right on the thin air, suggesting that what the artist imagines is as valid as what the artist records, right? What he can think of matters as much as what he can look at and then record. So here he is, out of his mind, imagining her into being um, in thin air. If you think about it, when you are thinking, your thought is fact, right? If you thought it, it's real. It happened, right? So, in some sense, creative nonfiction um, has that too. Even if it's something you just imagine, it's still real. And that goes with what he's doing here. The same is true for the essayist. What is imagined is as real as what we observe. What is thought is factual. The essayist Patricia Foster, who I studied with here when I was going through the nonfiction writing program, would often insist on the importance of the story of the mind, not just the body. What's happening inside of the person? Can that be brought onto the page more? What do you imagine? What do you speculate? What kind of reveries occur to you? What do you dream? All of those things are your property as the nonfiction writer. Now I think Virginia Woolf is kind of like a demigod in the array of nonfiction writers. She's incredible. And she shows how we can trust our imagination. This is from an essay called Street Haunting, where she's out on the streets of London Haunting them, just enjoying savoring everything that her eyes are bringing in. And she's giving her perception of reality as she does that walking. Let's choose those pearls, for example, looking into a shop window. And then imagine how, if we put them on, life would be changed. It becomes instantly between two and three in the morning. The lamps are burning very white in the deserted streets of Mayfair. Only motor cars are abroad at this hour, and one has a sense of emptiness, of airiness, of secluded gaiety. Wearing pearls, wearing silk, one steps out onto a balcony, which overlooks the gardens of Sleeping mayfair. There are a few lights in the bedrooms of great peers returned from court, of silk-stocking footmen, of dowagers who have pressed the hands of statesmen. A cat creeps along the garden wall. Love making is going on sibilantly, seductively in the darker places of the room behind thick, green curtains. But what could be more absurd? It is, in fact, on the stroke of six. It is a winter's evening. We are walking to the Strand to buy a pencil. How then are we also on the balcony wearing pearls in June? So she messes with us. She takes us so far into her reverie that we start feeling like it's happening, you know? And then she's like, oh, wait a minute. I'm just out walking. My excuse is I have to buy a pencil. And she's trying to find a shop where she can get one. And the whole story is as flimsy as that. She keeps walking until, in the end, she buys her pencil. But for a long time, we really enjoyed going on that walk with her and seeing life the way that she sees it. Sometimes, I think, tone trumps idea, particularly in our era, particularly with the lyric essay. By showing that the painted image was not the thing itself, Magritte was helping to open the door for other artists who were discarding the subject altogether, at least in the traditional representational sense. So new painters were feeling free to express themselves in abstract terms, and we've got Kandinsky here on the left side for you, um, who loved music and was often trying to compose art that would somehow express what he felt when he was looking at music. But we've got Jackson Pollock, who you, you may know well, You know, was wandering around on canvases on his knees, you know, and swinging buckets of paint just to see what happens and trying to create something that was a kind of impression that came out of that. And uh, then Klein, who uh, some people think, you know, was in some ways expressing something that came out of his childhood in the cold district in Pennsylvania with his dark black against white, making just these gestural slashes that for him were true and captured um, an emotional tone, an experience that wasn't just about a fact of some sort. This is a piece um, that you can see at Colorado Springs, the museum there, and um, it is by Arthur Doug. Uh, I'm arguing that cerebral um, recognition you know, of what is representational, the pre- presentation of an idea is not maybe always the main point of a nonfiction piece. That sometimes there's something more sympathetic and emotional that we're after. And in 1929, it's interesting to me, he was painting the same time as Magritte. Um, he painted uh, this piece, uh, and it's less representational than most. He was on a boat um, next to Long Island. He was hearing those big fog horns um, of the ships, sometimes in fog as they passed by. It had its impression on him, you know, it trembled his body. It made him feel a certain way. He wanted to capture that. What is that? And you know, also, he tried to paint that foghorn sound right onto a kind of wet, misty atmosphere. And this is what it came up with the sort of flower blooms or trumpet bells or whatever they are that are uh, suspended in air. This isn't a great image of it, but it kind of wave like um, surfaces underneath and the gray tones behind it. So he listened and he captured these deep musical tones. He conjured up that soupy sky. And later he said that this was a sequence of formations rather than him trying to form an arrangement of facts. So emphasis being that he wasn't just driven by fact. I think the essayist can also reach for a tone rather than an idea. And Mia Perpura is somebody who's getting a lot of attention now as a lyric essayist. She describes the New Jersey storm clouds She ends up quoting a gunsmith, weirdly, how about that for a jump, you know, from Clouds, who said to her that he could give her almost any metal coating that she would like on a gun. Any metal coating. And so she was intrigued as she's thinking about these clouds, and this is what she writes, almost anything I would like. As to, this sky is variously compounded, concussive, concupiscent, and oh, can be layered with names transcendently. It's the rivery color a silver spoon turns when held in a flame. It's the color of a well-used plumber's wrench, a perfectly battered railroad tie. I try on a burnt spoon sky below a sky where we sat down under wrench-colored clouds before the sky opened and a rain as hard as railroad ties fell. It's the color of a cataract, which, very like promontory, is not much in use ever nailed as both are to the 19th century provenance of the late district poets. It's a kinked, intestine-gone, bloodless, pale sky, translucent, unfeathered, fallen chick silver, powdered zinc, stripped olive pit, dirty kid water in a porcelain tub, Colloidal and swirly as milk and tea. I just think, wow, what a use of language, huh? Um, To read a whole essay, for some it's not your cup of tea. (laughs) Um, It may be or may not. It can be difficult to stay with. But it's about tone. It's about creating a kind of impression, a feeling, a mood. And that sometimes may be enough we really feel pulled into this storm that she is trying to recreate <clears throat> with its wet, dark, swirling atmosphere. And I think sometimes that can be enough. <laughs> if you'd like to look a little bit more at what I'm trying to convey here, there's an article that's come out, it's a little more tightly written, um, that has some of these same images. And you can get that at this website, it's an online journal called Assay, which uh, is to weigh, and goes with the term essay, which is to try, or to weigh something. So, uh, there's a website there that you can go to, and the, the article is As I See It, Art and the Essay. I have a couple more images that we can look at and talk a bit about, but I'm gonna first ask is uh, anybody struck by something that you want to chip in? Or do you want to take fisticuffs with me on on this subject? (laughs) Do you have a a difference of opinion?
4: Yeah. I just wondered, um, it's interesting to notice these, um, you know, compare compare these um, traits and these artists. I just wondered, is there a way to directly use art in when you are writing as opposed to just comparing techniques? To, like,
1: you, like to use it directly at, in your writing? Like
4: looking at, do you ever look at a, a piece of art about something you're trying to write about to help you um, form your, your own impression and, and express your own impression?
1: Absolutely. Um, do you tend to write more in fiction or poetry or nonfiction or? Lately, it's drawn fiction. More in fiction. Um, I remember in graduate school looking at one of the Bronte sisters. Charlotte, I think, in one of her novels, and seeing that all the way through it were paintings that she was putting into domestic spaces and describing, she was using them as a, a, a way to help us get tone, sometimes uh, create kind of symbolic situations, and she would also frame things, because she was so accustomed to it, I think she was an artist, and that's what I found in my research, and done a lot of painting, and so there were always frames, she would in in her actual picturing of people or situations create what looked almost like a stage or a frame or look through a window at what was happening. And it was just interesting to see that that was a way that she was unifying her work, and that she was allowing paintings right into what she was doing. Uh, Poetry, there's this long tradition of writing about the art itself, And I think it's interesting when I will have a class working on writing an ekphrastic poem, I will often tell them it may be, not necessarily, but it may be that the image you're looking at is not the point. That is that you'll take it and look at it and it will serve as a kind of portal. It's like you'll walk right through it into something you need to tell us. So it may get very little airtime in the piece that you write and yet it's so critical to what you do write, because it, it engendered this uh, response in you, whether it was a feeling that was very strong, or some memory that suddenly was triggered, or a whole set of things that followed out of that. And so you can uh, write out of art. I think, Cecile, you've done that quite a bit, haven't you? You yes. yeah. Poetry that just comes out of that, or, or nonfiction, or other That's things? essays. And we've got you know some wonderful stuff like Joan Didion writes on George O'Keeffe, a terrific essay that you might want to read sometime. You'll find you know, that there's a tradition of that not just with poetry. Somebody else have a thought or yeah. Yeah
5: I have an advertising background both in art and in writing. And in advertising they've learned so that that when you combine the two, when you use the visual art with the art of language, you impact your audience so much more strongly than if you only use one or the other. Um, At times I think this may be a reason that things like television and movies and the internet are moving forward uh, greatly in popularity, especially by the young, and novels and art galleries and whatever are in some ways being left in the dust because the more uh, the more you can use all of your senses at once, the the greater the impact. I mean, we know that to be true that that television is trusted as a source uh, of anything far more greatly than either print or radio. And the reason is because you have the impact of all of the above. And I've always thought how wonderful it would be if you could, and I'm it it, it's me, but if somebody could invent an art form that, that more, a fine art form that could more, completely
1: combine those two. Yeah, you're, you're making me realize that um, that is happening, I think. It is occurring. And uh, the lady who asked the first question, maybe you were wondering about actually incorporating visual art in the work. Is that what you were asking? Yeah, I
4: wasn't very clear. I was just wondering, like, in practice, how we could use art directly, like, yeah. yeah. And then how to choose which art to look so, at. So, you know, in my own
1: case, because I really love visual art, I've written about it quite a bit and done journalistic pieces that are retrospectives on an artist or looking at a new exhibit that just came out. Um, and that's a certain kind of thing you can do for a magazine. Um, then I started to realize, well, you can write an essay that has an art piece in it, like Cecile was talking about. You can you actually put it in there is another question. I wrote a piece for a journal that unfortunately no longer exists, South Loop Review, which was concerned with art and writing, and so they were interested at the time in getting essays that would combine the two, and mine was just called The White Painting, it started with a nephew in a museum, and two of us are standing in front of it, I, at the end, when I go to a museum I would say, which pieces do you like most, you know, and it makes my sons go crazy. But then we saw, and we, we talk about it. And my nephew is like standing in front of this white painting. It was completely white. He says, oh, I just really like this. And I'm like, you idiot. Like, what is there to like about this? And it really bothered me. You know? And we came up a little closer. And down at the very bottom was this little pencil, a uh, figure eight on its side. And he was wiser than I was. he's like, that's the infinity symbol. And I was like, oh, OK. You know, and so I started looking at this squeegee white paint that couldn't be a countertop. And it just got me thinking about how it was capturing something that it is hard to express. Um, and then I started thinking about paintings that I like by some people who give me a little more to work with, you know, like uh, Rothko, with his big color fields. Um, and he's considered a spiritual artist. And that got me thinking, because I was raising a hyper-religious missionary family, and I've always struggled with this. How do you express the spiritual in imagery? You've got your pre-Rothalites giving you these, you know, photographic, sumptuous images of, of Peter washing the foot of Jesus. You know, or no, Jesus washing the foot of Peter, I think is the way it is. He's demonstrated to them. Um, and to me, they always seem like overripe fruit. And also, like, that's not venom, really.
3: Um, I was suspicious of them, and yet those fields did something to
1: me spiritually, you know what I'm saying? So I wrote about that, and I put the images in, and I think that's happening more. But there are these agents who are the scum of the earth, who make you pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for each image. And I don't think the artists are getting like, any of it. Like Renee and McGree's not around to care about the money, but they're still just pulling it in for themselves, and it's going to be using them somewhat too. But it's just way over the top. So on most recent, on this article, I was having trouble getting rights to use the images for the article. Uh, running up the bill, you know, it's 250, 360, 450. And I'm thinking, I'm not even getting paid for this. So I can't do it. Um, we can only put links in so people can go over and check it out. Then we got comic art, which is a big thing that's happening. And people are getting really intrigued by how you can tell a whole story, novel or nonfiction, like Alison Bechtel with um, Fun Home, great story. I mean, this is classic literature that has imagery all the way through it. People are figuring out a savvy way to bring the two together. Then we've got documentary, and with it, what we call the photo essay, or the video essay. These things are happening. People are figuring out how to integrate the two, and I just hope it will keep going. I was just
2: going to mention
1: Born Magazine, the online.
2: Which one? Born, B-O-R-N. B-O-R-N, Born Magazine. We're a poet and a graphic artist collaborate on a piece, um, so
1: that's another piece. This is good to know about. And so they always have a piece that is poet and artist collaborate. Anybody else know of uh, initiatives like that you want to add?
0: Prompt Press. Prompt. Prompt Pre- Press, and press. It's, yeah, it's coming out of Iowa City, yeah. Out of Iowa City, also. That image, and um, and it can be any kind of literary artist.
2: Yeah, okay. You know, I'm going to show my age now, but just to go back to the comment about television and the the combination of of visual media and sound and words and everything having more of an effect on people, just to play devil's advocate, I think, the, the other side of that makes me kind of sad because I feel like there's a part of our brains that are just disintegrating, the part that that does That, 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 that engages with that, the work. Yeah, that used to do that for uh, uh, Bronte. Or
1: She's saying, it to be, you know, there is the flip side, that we get so concerned with the imagery, and it's so being shocked, presented, that it, it's kind of like a shortcut for forgetting how to just read and to let our imagination do the video in, in our inside ourselves, right? Yeah. In essence. Uh, that is the flip side of it. Um, and we we've, we've become very uh, dependent upon imagery. Certainly, my sons with their cell phones um, are constantly engaging with imagery, whether it's Instagram or, or videos that they want to watch or YouTube. Um, Gaming itself, which has become an art form of you know in its own right. Somebody back there was going to say something. Yeah. You I'm shout. Right. I'm definitely
4: okay. I took writing class years back when MTV first came up, and um, the, the teacher was really um, kind of upset because when we used to hear songs, I'm, I'm dating myself also, but we would hear songs in our own, own imagination. Yeah. Would um, make all these images, and I kind of really got what she meant and exactly what this lady, you know, what the other lady said. It just, I start. I quit watching it because it was just like so forcing you to have all these images. When it, when I was, you know, people that grew up with radio and just music, and then you know, no images. Your I, I agree. Your imagination really, like wow. But so I also think a lot of this is good too.
1: <laughs> it can rob us of that experience of doing the imagining. Yes. Yeah. I I'm just
5: wondering if you know that you almost essayed Mark Rothko. If what? Basically, the entire piece is spent for not getting out of the chair to figure out what something is. Over
3: there. Mm-hmm. Just until the very end of
5: the piece. And I was thinking about that. Yeah. Keeping the act and imagining the play for an entire squirrelly, beautiful
1: world So Virginia Woolf writes a whole piece is called A Mark on the Wall. A mark. a mark. on the Wall. And all she is doing is looking across the room at that mark and
5: uh, perceiving it? Yeah,
4: trying to guess. Yeah, but it
5: is at the end. Yeah. I'm not going
1: to Meanwhile, the pieces are really about what happens if you can't, if I make something out, it breaks out. So I, I just thought it was really well important what you're talking about. She, like I said, is, she's, you know, divine. So she's well worth reading. And I think perception is so important to her. In street haunting, if you go through and you look for any reference to the eyes, or anything that is related to vision, you'll find uh, about forty references um, that are all you know different uh, synonyms um, for vision or sight or eyes running through the whole thing. And the piece is, though, it seems to be just this silly walk about perception itself and the importance of it. Uh, to go back to the two
3: paintings of Richard Nixon. Yeah. What to me was so interesting about them is as different as they are and as different a feeling about him that they convey they are both undeniably Richard Nixon. Yeah. And nobody of a certain age would not recognize either one of them as such. So is was it the artist's job to represent Richard Nixon or to oh. convey you know maybe the first one was when he was younger? Uh, when he wasn't, he didn't represent the evil that we associate right, that with him, that way. and that's our job as writers also. Uh, it's about point of view, really. Right. I mean, 12 journalists could write an article on the same factual event that took place, and the words they choose, what they leave out, what they put in, what they put first, what they call the article, where it's placed in the newspaper, who they quoted all adds up to those two different paintings of Richard Nixon. Yes. And all 12 of them probably did an absolutely serviceable job of reporting the event.
1: All are valid. Uh, There are literary critics who would argue that we will know the subject better in community for that reason because we'll have these different perceptions and if you put a whole circle together then that circle of perception will probably provide more of the truth, if that's what we're after, so to speak, um, by getting the whole collective look. And if you think about yourself, if you were first to stand, if I was to stand in the middle of the room and you were all to look at me, you would be seeing things I myself can't see, right? You know, I'm like, I don't know what that looks like back there. Um, so there's a way in which I think that circle of perception um, does really work. Yeah, Jorah.
2: Are there guidelines to use or um, helpful things to consider if, when you're attempting to write using art? For instance, like if you look at the piece you have up here, you don't want to veer to a critique of it or a description of it. That's not interacting from a writing standpoint with it in the way that you're thinking creatively. But like, I mean, you can look at that and go, oh, isn't it great that he's looking at an egg and drawing a bird? There's metaphor there, right? But like, so are there guidelines when you attempt to do this to keep yourself kind of in a lane where you're like still. I don't know how to finish
1: that. Well, story. I think the, <laughs> it, I think it is valid for you to critique it, and I think sometimes it's interesting to have the person engage with a piece and say it's wrong, um, and and then deliver a different perspective on the same thing. I think that's fair too. Uh, but I don't think that there's one way of engaging with it. Like I said, sometimes it's not the point itself. It makes you think about something. Um, for me, he's seeing potential. He's looking at the egg and he sees beyond it and um, creates what, what is in it, what is potential. And that would get me off on my riff But somebody else looking at the same piece might see something very different and and go at it a different way, and that would be valid, too. I'm going to show you, just real quick, this closing last thing, one or two more images that I think are fun. For fun, what can I learn from this (laughs) image? Have you seen this before? It's pretty well known by a photographer named Elliot Erlich. And uh, on first glance, what happens to us is, is we see two women talking to each other on a sidewalk with this tiny dog up to the side. And it, he has duped us um, because he's gotten down on his belly and he's looked at this image from that vantage point. He's also included just enough of the chest of the dog to create what looks like another skirt. Um, and because it's the kind of dog it is, it looks like the high heels uh, of the woman next to it, right? And then that little dog is just wonderful, you know? He's down there like, oh crap, there they are talking to you. Um, and then we realize, no, we've been duped, and there's humor in it. So a couple of things we pick up. One is the angle of vision is very important, and when you can find a fresh perspective, a new way of looking at things from a different angle, you're gonna create good art, whether it's written or visual. What can we get from this? On one side we see a painting by Charles Weimer from 1853 about the abduction of Daniel Boone's daughter. And uh, it was kind of the traditional sentimental vision of the savages coming and ripping her away um, to do who knows what sort of violent thing to her. And they are three of them surrounding her, and she's got that supplicating, prayerful stance that we see as you know the uh, defenseless and um, spiritual creature that she is, civilized, unlike them. With their, she's got clothing on, though it's at risk. It looks like a little. They, they have very little, um, and. It creates a certain impression at the time that uh, outraged people who were worried about these savage Native Americans here in the United States. Then we get Enrique Chagoya, who comes up from Mexico and lives in the U.S. and starts making art, and he gives us this other image. What do you notice? Anybody? It's a logo for the Cleveland Indians. Back here, uh, you had your hand up. Oh, logo. No, Logo for the Cleveland Indians. Is that the logo for the Cleveland Indians? <laughs> hey, cool. You just filled me in on something. I didn't realize. So that's actually a logo. Oh wow, that's wonderful. Okay, what
3: else? <laughs> the body looks like a safari hunter. They're not an Indian of that particular.
1: Looks like a what? Like a safari hunter. Safari hunter, maybe. The way that he's dressed, the, the Indian with the big head, you're saying looks like he has on some kind of outfit um, that is more contemporary. You said safari hunter. Anybody else thinking other than that?
2: It's the same thing but the border patrol
1: on the boat. It's just the opposite. It's maybe hard for everybody to see, but the boat actually says across the bottom border patrol. And many of you may be looking at the clothing and thinking uniforms and they're carrying rifles, um, all of them. Uh, well, are they? One of them might still have what looks like a, he's still got his quiver on his back, doesn't he? But border patrol, well, that really changes things, doesn't it? And when you look up top, then you've got more words, illegal alien. Shaboy is saying to us, here are these three men doing their job just like our people do their job down at the border, making sure that those immigrants don't come across. Um, He's saying, well, who was here first? And what was their role? They found this illegal alien. What was she doing here? Let's get her out of here. She doesn't belong. Deport her. Um, One of the things we pick up from it is that you can quote that's what we're seeing here, it's a quotation. And in your writing, quoting is a good thing sometimes, to refer to something that is well-known, but when you do it, often look for what is cliché and turn it on its head, so that you're now giving us a new and fresh perspective on it. So like, Tobias Wolf writes an essay called The Last Shot, and in it, he's outraged, because he's helping his son on a paper, and his son is quoting George Orwell, who says it's a good thing to die with one's boots on. And Tobias suddenly is like, what the hell? That, because he loves Orwell, would he really say that? Because Wolf actually spent time in the war and he actually saw people who got blown out of their boots. And so he tells about a close friend and he makes you really like this guy. And then that guy and he jump out of the plane to parachute down towards war and that's the last image and he says are we having fun yet and he's singing some high-pitched song and they leap out of a plane and that's what you're left with and he's making you engage with that question is it good to die with your boots on to just suddenly get gone and he speculates what would life have been like for that friend had he lived what kind of how many children would he have had what would they have done together would they have played baseball He creates all of that that was gone because of this notion that it's good to dive your boots on. Let's just, you know, go out there, rah, rah, and get it over with, maybe. So he takes something and he quotes it, and he turns it on its head and makes it a very good experience. Last image, and we'll quit here. This is Albert Bierstadt. Anybody want to take a stab at something you learned from it? that you're noticing as you look closely at it is just high contrast. You've got a big area of darkness, big area of light, and we look for that in our writing as well, otherwise it's monotone. The other thing is there's foreground and there's background. We need something to look at. Even if we're getting something that's very delicate and beautiful in the background, we need to know what the story is, so to speak, sometimes in this kind of painting at least. And sometimes in the kind of writing that we're doing. And another thing that I think you can get from it is that it's okay to exaggerate. Because if you were to look at actual photos of Puget Sound, um, you would find at that time they weren't as dramatic as this. And you'd find that's true of all of Bierstadt's paintings, whether he's in the Yellowstone National Park or looking at the Tetons, he's always exaggerating. And uh, through his exaggeration, he's bringing us into the magnificence of it. In his case, he's all about what is sublime. We may not be, but he's accomplishing it beautifully because of that exaggeration. So sometimes, even with nonfiction, we do um, exaggerate. That's it, thanks for coming, and there's like one question here, people need to go find. Yeah.
2: Another way of looking at exaggerating is in visual arts it's the focus only 10% of your visual field is in focus at any time and you see that focus and the rest of it is hazier so you could really if you do what he did maybe it's not exactly Yeah. to do that
1: Yeah.
2: That's what so these Creating, and okay, it's a storm and there's yeah. motion in it, but your visual field only has 10% in focus when you're looking at your eyes. And any artist, when they make a composition, they have to decide what's in focus and what isn't. If it's all the same focus, it flattens out and it's boring. So it's yeah. like pacing or yeah. anything yeah. like that. Like that with Thank
1: you. Great comment. I think we'll stop there. And if you want to talk more, I'm glad to talk a little bit. Thank you.